1: This is The Guardian.
2: Hey, Jane Lee here. Murph is on a well deserved end of year break. But earlier this week, I recorded a special conversation with her for Guardian Australia's daily news podcast, Full Story, where we talked about the big political moments of 2022, which we think you'll really enjoy. Okay, here's the show. I'm Jane Lee, coming to you from Wurundjeri Land, and this is The Full Story. All this week, we're taking stock of what we've learned from this year's biggest stories and what it all means for 2023. Today, Guardian Australia's political editor, Catherine Murphy, is here to
0: discuss the year in federal politics. It's been a a very big year of change, change of government, change of agenda, change of conversation.
2: Labor is back in power after almost a decade in opposition. A large progressive crossbench is introducing new kingmakers and reshaping the priorities for the 47th parliament. And the Liberal Party is facing an existential crisis. So how much has this new government achieved so far? And what are the political fights we need to keep our eye on in the new year? It's Thursday, the 22nd of December. Murph, it's been a long year and a lot has happened, so before we get into it all, I want to know if there have been any particularly bizarre moments in politics that stand out to you from the year. I was particularly struck when Scott Morrison accidentally (laughs) crash-tackled a small child while playing soccer during the election campaign.
0: (laughs) It was pretty bizarre. Oh, my God. That, to me, felt like the end of something. And so it came to pass. It was actually the end of the Morrison government, and sort of no better image. Exemplifies that because uh, there was so much about uh, Scott Morrison's politics that was performative. So it really exemplified that moment of per- performative politics running way off the rails. My other sort of big, uh, sort of loopy moment was when we discovered sometime after the change of government, sticking with Morrison, that he had secretly sworn himself into a bunch of ministries, uh, some during the pandemic, some 18 months after the peak of the pandemic uh, and he hadn't bothered to tell colleagues. I only did it particularly in portfolios of significant areas of of importance, i.e. Treasury and Home Affairs, because they were unilateral decision-making powers of ministers. And And then let's end the year on a slightly light moment, although apologies, Michael McCormick, if you're listening, because obviously from your perspective it was not a light moment. But uh, Michael McCormick, the former Nationals leader, went on a sweep of the Pacific... With colleagues from the government, right towards the end of the year, uh, he was offered carver at one of the stops. He, let's just say, belted it down somewhat enthusiastically. Mr McCormack, just how are you feeling? Rumours of my death, as Mark Twain once famously
1: said, are greatly exaggerated
0: and then spent several hours with his head in a bucket uh, afterwards and required a brief trip to hospital and a rehydration exercise. So, uh, you know, sorry, Michael, that would have been quite an uncomfortable moment for you, particularly when the televisions basically ran the footage of that. Uh, But anyway, it was just one of those out there moments to end the year on. We hope you are better now, Michael, and doing well. You know, I I think it's safe to say, Murph,
2: probably the biggest political story this year was, a little thing called the federal election mm-hmm. in May, mm-hmm. um, which I guess you're still recovering <laughs> yes. from. Um, I mean, we've got a new Labor government. What was the biggest takeaway from for you from this change? And has the new
0: progressive crossbench lived up to all the hype so far? I think probably uh, we should have known, Jane, during the election campaign when Mike Bowers and I were in northern Tasmania and we met a voter who, uh, when we asked them which way they were voting, characterised the major parties as...
1: Two chicks to seem arsehole, really.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We should have known. (laughs) <laughs> at that point, that we were going to see an election result where the major parties basically netted their one of their lowest primary votes on record, uh, mm. both the Labor Party and the Liberal Party. I think the Liberal Party had the lowest primary vote since its formation and I think Labor since the 30s. So what that means, obviously, is that uh, voters were looking for opportunities to experiment with something different and we certainly saw that mm. in this election campaign. To your second question, which is how's it all gone? Um, Uh, this whole sort of progressive reset in Canberra. I think uh, so far so good is the answer to that question. Uh, I think there has been quite a conscious effort on the part of the government and on the part of other uh, progressive actors in the parliament to make a good start, to basically show the Australian people that a more collaborative way of doing politics rather than the traditional major party winner-takes-all way of doing politics uh, can succeed. So I think we've seen quite a lot of time invested in relationship building and we've also seen quite a lot of legislation passed the Parliament uh, in this opening six months. Now, the question for 2023 is can this continue? Well, I think the Australian people would say hopefully, because it's quite good to have a functional parliament that gets on and does things. But I think the difficulties are the closer that we get to an election, and granted we're not there yet, the greater the incentives become for all of these political actors to start sort of differentiating their product and showing the voters, no, no, you you can't vote Labor, you must vote Green, or, or you can't vote Liberal, you must vote Teal. It gets into that point where... The incentives are all sort of about the political cycle rather than the governing cycle. But I'm very hopeful that we could get another 12 months of a governing cycle because I think the country could really use one. Prime Minister
2: Anthony Albanese laid out some pretty big priorities for his government on election night. Let's start with establishing an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Mm -hmm. What's been done so
0: far on that front? Anthony Albanese has sunk a lot of his own political capital in trying to set up this debate uh, for a referendum in 2023. Uh, what's been done so far is Prime Minister has nominated this as a priority. He has, uh, at the Gama Festival, he shared some wording about uh, the change to the constitution. Our starting point is a recommendation to add three sentences to the constitution in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first peoples of Australia. There's ongoing consultations to sort of settle uh, the sort of absolute parameters of the model, of the voice that uh, this government would like to pursue. Australians have first got to decide at a referendum whether or not they want to change the constitution in order to enshrine a reference to a First Nations representative and advisory body. Now, the history of Australian referenda tells us that it's quite hard to change the constitution if there's not bipartisan support, which leads us to the next thing that's happened, Jane, which is... the National Party late in the year determined that they would uh, uh, say no uh, to The Voice uh, during the referendum campaign next year. The Liberals are still deliberating and uh, I don't think we will see their position until early in 2023. Look, it's possible they will do the same thing as the Nats because there are a number of very hardcore opponents to uh, the idea of a constitutionally enshrined body uh, in the Liberal Party room. Uh, but I think the sort of most likely position on the balance of probabilities is that MPs will be able to exercise their consciences about whether or not they support this proposal or not. So that's a big one for the year. If not now, When? I am determined for us to succeed in this great project.
2: Yeah, so a lot of different potential variables there for how that debate could be shaped and framed in the new year depending on what the Liberal Party decides. How do you think the debate on the referendum could play out in the new year and how could politicians influence the way that happens
0: for better or for worse? Well, it would be nice if everybody was pleasant and civil and factual. You certainly wouldn't want to bet the House on seeing that. It's sort of one of those issues that uh, could become quite ugly and quite divisive uh, in the event that people want to play a misinformation game or a culture war game. You you don't really want to think about some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, But I think though, on the plus side, obviously the Prime Minister uh, has run out of the box early to try and establish a civil factual debate. Uh, I think every Premier in the country supports this as a change and a number of the Premiers are in fact doing similar things in their own jurisdictions, Uh, obviously not requiring a referendum, but I think uh, there are a lot of business leaders and other civil society uh, contributors who will campaign positively uh, for this change, noting that it's way past time for this, in fact, but it would be a positive thing for the country. So we can only hope that the positive voices drown out uh, people who want to basically use the opportunity of the referendum to sow discontent or alienation or uh, some sort of unhinging from truth and fact. Our working assumption is that the uh, referendum campaign will be in the second half of 2023, but the government hasn't yet specified when the referendum will be. I'm just saying this, there are persistent rumours around Canberra that uh, the Prime Minister may in fact have a surprise up his sleeve and may seek to uh, bring on the referendum debate earlier than many people suspect. Now, I don't know that. I'm, I'm being very clear in what I'm saying about that. This, this is a persistent speculation. It may not be mm. true. It may not be right. But uh, I think one thing that we can be certain of is the Prime Minister will sort of embark down this road at a time when he thinks the conditions are most favourable for success. Mm. One to watch
2: then. Another priority of the Albanese government was establishing a National Integrity or Anti-Corruption Commission, which, you know, we saw a number of blue seats turn teal over that and also climate action. Now we have a National Anti-Corruption Commission.
0: Yeah, Marv. yeah. Wild, (laughs) wild, because it's been a a very big year of change, change of government, Mm. change of agenda, change of conversation. I think the practical implications of the first federal anti-corruption body have floated off on the breeze a little bit. Uh, Politics now at the federal level, uh, protagonists, if they've got any brains, will have to be working in an environment where they assume that any of their communications are subject to surveillance. Uh, any of you know their conversations, their meetings could basically become part of a of an anti-corruption investigation. But I don't know whether these guys have thought, gosh, when we come back in 2023, we're really going to have to fundamentally change the way we operate. So I think that'll be quite interesting in the new year, that whole phenomenon. You know, one of the big
2: themes this year politically, Murph, was dealing with the rising cost of living. The war in Ukraine's contributing to record high inflation, higher oil and gas prices, and the Prime Minister even recalled Parliament last week to try and fix
0: this. Can you talk us through what happened? Yeah. Well, look, last week basically the, the Prime Minister and the premiers worked out a set of arrangements for a, a regulatory intervention in the energy market. So just, just mm-hmm. quickly and not in a stunning amount of depth, uh, what, the, what the leaders agreed to was a cap uh, for coal prices, which the states will take care of, a cap for gas prices which the Commonwealth is taking care of, and also a bucket of money at the federal level, which will be allocated in the new year towards energy rebates that the states will kind of offer consumers. So that was sort of a big package of legislation. Now, basically, uh, what this does is sort of take the edge off rising bills. It doesn't It doesn't return energy bills to where we were pre-Ukraine. And I think what we can sort of assume, Jane, is that what the Treasurer and the Prime Minister will be hoping for from Santa Claus will be that the inflation, which is driving this, starts to moderate over 2023. Uh, Treasury has forecast basically that inflation will remain higher than average for most of next year before starting to moderate. Uh, and so that means higher borrowing costs, uh, higher prices of consumer goods, energy bills, which like we say, there's a, there's a cut off the top there that's, that's been on offer. But still, people are going to be in a higher price environment for at least another 12 months. And of course, when frustration builds up, uh, you know, people blame the incumbents. They they start to blame the government if there's no magic wand. So I think this is a very sort of difficult retail political issue for the government to manage mm. through next year.
2: So Labor had to secure the support of the Greens and some other independent senators in order to cap gas prices because the coalition was opposed to the plan. What do the Greens and the coalition's stances on this legislation tell
0: us about what their priorities are going to be in the new year? It, it demonstrates again that uh, Adam Bant is intent on keeping the Greens at the table in these big legislative decisions. It demonstrates to me that Adam Bant wants to be at the table if he can be.
2: This is a bad day to be a greedy tax dodging gas corporation.
0: In terms of the coalition, well, it sort of exemplifies their strategy for much of this six-month transition, which is to differentiate from Labor at all costs.
2: Let's be very clear about it. The government has no plan. There is no plan that has been worked on over the course of the period since they won the election. And they need to be honest with the Australian people. They've thrown around this figure of $230, a new figure that they've created. Now, they've walked away from that within only a matter
0: of days. Even on issues uh, that, you know, where you would think it's very bad politics for them to vote against a cut in power bills, but in their mind what they're setting up is this very high visibility contrast contest with labor labor is taking the country in a certain direction we will take the country in another direction you know vote one liberal party well you know i can see what peter dutton's doing i can i can see why that that seems to be the easiest strategy for the liberal party at this point in time but is it an election winning strategy I doubt it. Uh, So I think uh, the Liberal Party has got to do some thinking uh, over 2023 about how it wants to come back, whether it wants to represent just some sections of the community or whether it wants to position itself again as a big tent political actor that can represent Australians from the inner city right through to the remotest regions in the country. So I think Peter Dutton's got some thinking to do. The risk for the coalition is that they end up stranded in their own strategy, Mm. that people in May voted for uh, political actors who would do something about this issue. People are sick of the contention. They're sick of the decade of climate war. They don't want to hear about it, right? They just want it sorted. So I think... Uh, Dutton's strategy of climate and cost of living just bombarding Labor with with negative messages, it, it does have some salience, but I, I wonder whether or not events might strand him in a strategy that sounds a bit retro and sounds a bit combative at a time when the Australian public have voted for something else. Do you think we could see the government
2: introduce any other measures to help with the cost of living in 2023?
0: Look, I think the government has been trying not to intervene uh, too much, but what the energy package shows us, though, Jane, is they will intervene. Mm. I think that's the lesson of this regulatory intervention at the end of the year is that if they're in their judgment, it's just impossible, then they will intervene. Yeah. (laughs) Next, what will
2: Australia's place in the world look like in
0: 2023? Hey, Laura Mofiotis here. If you like keeping up to speed with the day's news, you should subscribe to our free newsletters. They're short and curated so you don't miss a beat. And there's two of them, morning mail and afternoon update. Visit our website where you'll be able to subscribe to both newsletters directly from our homepage. Okay, back to the podcast.
2: Well, that caps off all the major battles in domestic politics this year, I think. But Murph, Australia is also facing a lot of challenges internationally as well. This week, Foreign Minister Penny Wong is heading to China, becoming the first Australian minister to visit the country in three years. And that follows on from the Prime Minister's meeting with China's President Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Bali earlier this year, which marked the official end of a diplomatic freeze between the two
0: countries. What do you make of this? I think it was really important uh, because it's sort of, it just stabilises the relationship and I think that's all we can expect. Well, I think the the, the mark of success is dialogue itself. Uh, we obviously have a lot of issues to work through and dialogue is a prerequisite for working through them. In an era of great power competition, and by that I mean ongoing competition for influence between China and the US uh, and we are obviously an ally of the United States I think a capacity to disagree well or disagree better uh, is sort of the foundation the foundational reset that the government's gone for uh, can we at least disagree better and can we avoid strategic miscalculation or misadventure. And again, what I mean by that is that uh, there's some sort of confrontation accidentally, say, in the so- in the South China Sea, which then escalates into a full-scale military engagement. Everyone wants the lines of communication open to be able to de-escalate an accident in the event an accident mm. happens. So uh, I think that's where the new government's going with this. I think we'll see uh, more on that relation-building front involving the foreign minister, uh, and that's that's also important. Uh, look, critically for Australia, we need to convince or attempt to persuade uh, Beijing to step off some of the trade sanctions that have obviously been damaging for our economy. Also, at the human rights level, we have citizens detained uh, in Beijing, and we desperately want those people to Uh, be able to come home. Mm. So we have very specific objectives in terms of what we would like to see from that normalisation. I do think just quickly it's also interesting, of course, that China is now pursuing a burst of open diplomacy. uh, After the pandemic where uh, China basically shut itself off from the rest of the world and we saw the economic implications of that all around the world, Uh, and there was that whole sort of era of the trade war with Trump and there was all of that, you know, contention, Um, China sort of stepped back for a couple of years. I think what we've seen recently is this sort of re-entry of China into a more sort of open diplomacy. Now, I think that's really interesting. I don't know what it means uh, I don't think it makes everything fine. I don't think it makes uh, you know China anything other than an authoritarian regime that has very very different values and and uh, and ways of doing things from uh, Western democracies like Australia. but I do think it's interesting that China is back in the world again. Don't know what it means we need to watch
2: mm. well what about Australia's relationship with Pacific. I mean, during the election, we spoke at length about the alarm that was raised by Solomon Islands security pact with China, for example, during the campaign. How has Australia's relationship with countries like Solomon Islands and Vanuatu changed since then? I think,
0: honestly, the soft power offensive that the Foreign Minister Penny Wong has exercised in the region since the change of government is some of the most important diplomacy we have seen for many, many years. She basically ripped out of the blocks immediately and uh, sought to visit as many countries in the Pacific as possible uh, and also uh, all of our Southeast Asian neighbours who are very important in in terms of the soft power objectives, which is uh, basically to sort of curtail uh, Beijing's influence in the region. There has been important stabilisation of relationships and, look, it's a good starting point. Now I guess we see what that what we can build from that starting point.
2: Mm. And the Department of Home Affairs last week announced it was officially changing its focus from, you know, boat arrivals to natural disasters, resilience um, against climate disasters and, and foreign interference. Mm. And I know you recently interviewed the Minister, uh, Claire O'Neill, on your podcast Australian Politics about this. Because of technology, there's all these ways that state actors are trying to influence us that are happening right now. Cyber attacks, foreign interference, people, you know, harassing diaspora communities, all of these things are other countries reaching their tentacles into Australia and trying to influence or shape how we respond to global events, and we need to fight that. It is core for us to fight back against that. And if we don't, we end up with a degraded democracy. This is a significant shift in
0: direction. Mm. What did you make of this? Claire O'Neill has come in with with very different priorities. Mm. Now, obviously, uh, you know, maintaining border control is important for a sovereign nation. But I think uh, everybody in the country is aware of the complexities of our security picture. And there is a fair dimension of that that involves physical security given the increasing frequency of natural disasters basically we we are rolling from one to the next and we do not have the structures federally to manage that situation so i think it's very interesting that uh, that home affairs is being sort of given that priority given that task i think uh, as time goes on australians will be quite grateful for that shift in thinking mm. and of course uh, you know a lot of the the sort of threats to our sovereignty, uh, threats to our values uh, as people, residents in a liberal democracy, are through foreign interference and through uh, through cyber attacks. And uh, I think we've had recent examples of high-level data hacks, Mm. which suggests that we as a country are not very well placed to weather those attacks. So I think... What Claire O'Neill's signalling has been quite interesting on this front. Not that we're going to stop doing a whole bunch of stuff that we used to do in the past, but that there will just be a shift in focus in terms of the resourcing of the department and uh, and the resourcing of government. And I think what she's said on that front seems to make a lot of intuitive sense. Mm.
2: And now that 2022 is almost over, Murph, we're inching <laughs> closer and closer to the end of the year. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which political fight will you be watching most closely when we come back in the new year?
0: Well, I think sort of three things are of interest. I think we can predict, Jane, that as soon as we're back, uh, we're we're sort of in a new cycle for the budget, which will be in May. And I think there will be a lot of discussion about whether or not the government will do something or nothing with the Stage 3 tax cut package. People uh, listening may remember that Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher flew a bit of a kite on Stage 3 before the October budget. I think the government wants to look at this package but I'm going to make a hot tip here for everybody. I think it is highly unlikely that the government will do whatever it wants to do with the Stage 3 package for the 2023 budget. I suspect it will be the year after that. But anyway, I've been wrong before. (laughs) Let's see it. But anyway, there's a big prediction to end the year on. Now, the other thing I think, or a couple of things that I think are very important, particularly in the first six months of 2023, uh, we will see all of the detailed climate policy work. In the opening six months of the new government, we saw targets pass the parliament. Targets are very important, but targets mean nothing unless you've got the mechanisms to actually drive the emissions reduction. So we're going to see a whole bunch of work on the safeguard mechanism, which is about making heavy polluters pollute less. Uh, We're going to see some work on the crediting regime, uh, which we don't need to get into the ins and outs of that, but it's very important when we talk about uh, emissions reduction to have a functioning credit system. We're also going to see more steps taken on electric vehicles and driving a strategy to electrify the transport fleet, very important to reducing emissions and also a broader agenda in electrification for households and other other things. So I think we will see a lot of detailed work on climate and the energy transformation in the first six months of next year, including of course the beginning of the Rewiring the Nation program, Mm. which is about Building high voltage transmission infrastructure. So, hard work, Chris Bowen. Hope you're having a rest. Anyway, uh, the third thing uh, I think is very important, sort of flows on from our conversation about Australia's place in the world. Obviously, uh, Australia will be doing what it can to use the sort of stabilisation of those relationships in the region to push our alliances to the next level. And that involves whole bunch of stuff, trade, cooperation, defence, all sorts of things. So I think we'll see quite a lot of work on that. And uh, also in the first quarter of next year, and it'll play out through the budget and the first six months of next year, there is a review of defence capability, which means, you know, have we basically got the material in order to defend ourselves in the event, God forbid, uh, you know, a Russia came along and just invaded us with little or no warning. Uh, so the Defence Capability Review is asking those questions. And obviously, you know, there's a whole big playback into the AUKUS Nuclear Submarine Pact and all kinds of things. Some of those uh, issues, I think, will be resolved in the first six months of next year. So it's sort of like, if we think about this, right, we've had an election, We've had a transition, which is the last six months. I think 2023 is a really heavy year of governing. And uh, and that's what we're going to see over the next 12 months. And it'll be uh, very interesting to see whether all the actors in the parliament, opposition, crossbenchers, Greens, everybody can rise to the occasion of working as collaboratively as possible on the big things the country needs in order to face the future.
2: was Guardian Australia's political editor Catherine Murphy you can read more of Murph's commentary at theguardian.com including an article she recently wrote reviewing the big political highlights of the year it's called Scott Morrison swept away by political tide as Anthony Albanese fights to fireproof 2023 we'll post a link to that on the full story website that's it for today this episode was produced by Karishma Maluthria and myself sound design and mixing was by Camilla Hannan the executive producer for today was Gabrielle Jackson I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket?